Charles Coulson, better known as Chuck, was appointed special counsel to Richard Nixon in 1969. He was often referred to as Nixon's hatchet man. For his role in the Watergate scandal, he was sentenced to seven months in a federal prison. It was there in prison that Chuck Colson heard the gospel and surrendered to Jesus as Lord of his life. And he made a commitment from that point on that he would minister to those that God placed him in front of, specifically those who were in prison. He went on to form what is now the largest Christian nonprofit ministry to prisoners and their families, known as Prison Fellowship. In 1999, Chuck Colson co-authored a book with Nancy Piercy. And the goal of the book was to teach Christians how to confront unbiblical, ungodly worldviews that they encountered in the world today. And they, they did it by presenting a coherent and a cohesive and a logical, biblical Christian worldview. The title of that book was, How Now? shall we live and I share that with you because I believe the title of that book is a good question for us to ask ourselves especially in light of where we were if you were here with us last week we looked at what the Bible had to say we, we said that sometimes life really knocks the wind out of us that, that our circumstances can kind of turn our world upside down and we're left reeling just trying to catch our breath but as we looked at the book of first Peter as Peter was writing to those believers who were suffering and they were struggling we saw that the Bible gave us three steps that we can take in the midst of those times we saw the Bible teaches us that we are to remember who we are, that, that we are sons and daughters of the king, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that this world is not our home. And so when life turn, circumstances turn us upside down, we need to remember who we are. We saw that we need to remember what we have, this great and glorious salvation that can't be touched by evil or by death or by time. It's incorruptible. It's imperishable. It is a far valuable salvation that there's nothing in this world that can strip that away from us. And we need to remember in those times when life's turned upside down, we need to remember what those trials in our lives produce. They, they prove the authenticity of our faith. That it's not just something that we speak. It's not just lip service that we give, but that our faith is grounded in genuine faith in Jesus. And it's in those times of life when things are upside down that we demonstrate the authenticity of our faith. But we also need to remember that those trials result in the praise of our Savior. And that when people witness and they watch as you and I cling tightly to Jesus in the midst of those times, it ends up resulting in his praise and honor and his glory. Those steps are crucial for us to remember when life gets turned upside down. This morning, I want us to continue looking at what Peter has to say at, to, to these believers and, and ask ourselves this question, how now shall we live in light of all of these truths? We're going to pick up there in verse 13 where we left off last week. Now, just let me remind you again, Peter is writing to believers. They're suffering. They're struggling. They're facing persecution. They've even been driven out of their homes. They're in, living in new places. And here's what he says. Verse 13. Therefore, 
Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I want to stop there because I want you to see that in these nine verses, I believe Peter gives us three specific characteristics that should mark the lives of believers in the midst of life's challenging circumstances. And I don't want you to think that Peter's just writing these and these are just applicable to the believers that were suffering and struggling that Peter was writing this letter to originally because these principles and these characteristics are to be just as true of our lives today. They're also to be a part of the lives of every believer today. And so I would say to you this, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet taken that step of faith, you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, you're still investigating those claims of Christ and whether or not Christianity is true, I'm so honored and grateful and glad that you are here, whether you're in this room or online. But I want you to understand that these words that Peter's writing in this, and God's word to us this morning is directed to those who have already taken that step of faith. They've already placed their trust in Jesus. The message is primarily for you. Those of you who have placed your trust in Jesus, if you're here and you haven't done that, my prayer is that you would see what can be yours and what could be yours because it's God's desire for all of you, no matter who you are. And if you're here and you don't know Christ or you're online and you don't know Christ, I would love the opportunity to share with you how you can have that. Peter's message is for those of us who, are, who have already trusted in Christ. So here are the three specific characteristics should be part of the life of a sojourner. First, it is a life that is focused on Jesus. It is a life that is intently focused on Jesus. Now, I've said this so many times that the students in our ministry will probably complete this phrase before I can even get it out of my mouth. When we come to verse 13 and we read the first word there, therefore, what are you supposed to do? Go back and find out what it's there for. It's there for a reason. You see, everything that Peter is saying in verse 13 is built upon what he said in the previous 12 verses. So we have to go back and say, what did Peter say in verses 1 through 12? What is he basing everything he's getting ready to say on? And the foundation goes back to what he said in verses 1 through 12. Remember who you are. Remember what you have. Recognize what trials produce. In other words, because you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus you have been given a gift you've been given salvation you've been given hope you've been given peace you've been given eternal life and because you have that you have something far greater than this world could ever 
ever hope for. Yes, you may have to go through trials. Yes, life may get unbelievably tough. But remember what you have and who you are. Remember what Christ has purchased you. And so Peter is saying this, because of who Jesus is and because of who you are, this then is how you should live. He's going to answer that question for us. Now, when we come to verse 13, it almost seems like Peter is giving believers three separate instructions. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It may seem like that because when we read it in our English translation, they seem to flow seamlessly. But if you could read this in the original language, you would be able to notice that there is only one of these verbs that is in the imperative sense. All the others are participles. I'm not going to bore you with a Greek lesson, don't worry, or an English one for that matter. But it's important. Because there's one main idea, there's one main verb, and all the others are simply supporting that one main verb. And the instruction, the one main verb in this imperative form is actually the last one that's listed. It's the one that says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're saying, what is Peter saying here? He's saying this, don't lose sight of Jesus. Live fully for eternity. Don't get so caught up in the, how bad things are going. Don't get so caught up in the trials that you're facing now that you lose sight of the Savior. And you see, when he says, rest your hope fully upon the graces to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter's pointing to a specific event. He's pointing to a specific event. And what is that specific event? The return of Jesus. Peter says to these believers, yeah, things are hard right now. I know things are unbelievably tough. And the persecutions and the hardships that you are experiencing, they make you feel like just giving up, like throwing in the towel. But don't lose sight of the end. Don't forget about what's to come. Don't forget about who is to come. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't place all of your eggs in one basket? You've heard that phrase before, right? It's a common concept that we encounter in this world, and people say it all the time. What do they mean by that? They're saying, don't take everything you have and put it all in one thing, because if that one thing fails, then what are you left with? Nothing. I'll tell you this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter does not subscribe to that philosophy. In fact, Peter is saying exactly the opposite of don't place all your eggs in one basket. He's saying place everything in the basket of Jesus. Place all of your hope. Rest it fully in Christ. Go all in on Jesus. Live with an eternal perspective. You see, when we face these difficult times in our life, we need to remember that this world is not our home. And we don't live with an earthly, temporal perspective that these things are temporary and they're passing and one day they'll be all gone. But what we have to look forward to is so far greater. 
Rest your hope fully in Jesus. Don't chase after the things that this world chases after. Don't place value on the things that this world places value on. Trust in Christ alone. So what is a sojourner to do? Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be revealed at the time of Jesus. Set your eyes on him. But notice two things that the scripture says are important to this task. This is where those participle verbs come in and help us understand more about this resting our hope fully in Jesus. Two things that are important to that task. Number one, disciplined thinking. If we're going to rest our fully, hope fully in Jesus, if we're going to keep our eyes fixed on him, then it's going to require disciplined thinking. Now, verse 13 begins with a phrase that sounds a little bit odd to us in 2022. Gird up the loins of your mind. You're going like, what in the world, right? If you lived in the first or second century, this would be make perfect sense to you. It would be common. It wouldn't sound so foreign to your ears because they would completely understand what gird up your loins means. You, you see, in those days, everyone, men and women, wear these long flowing garments to cover their body. Something like this. That's your cue. There we go. <laughs> they may not be the most fashionable thing to wear today, but it was back then. Now, that may have been fashionable that day, but imagine this. You're wearing that when a lion sees you and decides you would make for a good snack. That flowing garment is not going to be something that's going to enable you to run very quickly. You're going to get all tripped up on that, and you're going to be a nice snack for that lion. So what they would do is they would grab the bottom of that, and they would bring it up and tuck it into their belt. That was called girding up your loins because the area from below your ribcage to your below your pelvis, pelvis was called the loins. They would understand what it means to gird up your loins. Get ready to run. Lose that. So what Peter does is he gives this application to their thoughts. He says, prepare your minds. Get your thinking right. Gird up the loins of your mind. Listen, if you ask me, I think this might be the greatest battlefield in the world, especially for the child of God. Your mind, your thoughts, what, he, what the enemy can get you to think, this is the greatest battlefield. And if you're going to rest your hope fully on Jesus, then it's going to require some disciplined thinking. The greatest struggle to keep an eternal perspective starts right here because we look at our circumstances and we begin fixating on them. Like, why is this happening to me? And how bad are things gonna get? And what's wrong with me? And why is this happening? And all of those thoughts come flooding into our minds and our gaze comes from off Jesus and down onto our problems. And we're not living with an eternal perspective. If we're gonna live focused on Jesus, it's going to require some disciplined thinking. When pain or struggles or trials come your way, you're going to have to discipline yourself to say, I'm not going to focus on my circumstances. I'm going to keep my eyes set on Jesus. And what he says is true. Fight to keep your eyes on him. The life of a sojourner is focused on Jesus, and that requires disciplined thinking. But second, it also requires sober living. It also requires 
sober living. He says there in verse 13, these sojourners were to be sober. Now, he's not just talking about avoiding alcohol or illicit drugs, although we could certainly include that in the list of things to avoid. No, what Peter is talking about here are things that might numb or dull our minds or our lives to the things of God. And that can be any number of things. It can be any number of even good things. They're not bad in and of themselves. They can be good things. But when they numb us or they desensitize us or they, they, they help us, they keep us oblivious to God and his activity, they become problems. Social media, with its subtle or probably not so subtle way of distracting us, of telling us what's beautiful, valuable, or desirable. Maybe it's success that's numbing your minds or your senses, keeping you numb to the things of God, keeping you from being oblivious to God's activity, whether it's success in the classroom or in the workplace or in the realm of athletics or whatever it is that you're seeking after. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's that endless pursuit of the next big thing, just making sure you've got the latest or the greatest, chasing after that. This desensitizes you. There are things that can be harmful in our life if we allow them to distract us from God's presence and his activity. I want you to consider your life. Are there anything, are there any things in your life that could be numbing you to God's voice or God's presence or God's activity in your life? Is there some thing or some person or some activity that has so captivated you that it's robbed you of time and attention and affection that rightly belongs to God? When times get tough, when our circumstances in life turn us upside down, we're going to have to fight with disciplined thinking and with sober, focused living in order to keep our focus fixed on Jesus. If you are a sojourner on this earth, realize that your life is meant to be lived, focused on Christ, not just when you come in the doors of the church on Sunday or on Wednesday but each and every moment of each and every day. This is what it means. This is how we should live. Our eyes set on Jesus. Now listen, living for eternity does not mean escaping this present world. There are some people who interpret this to mean that, that we've got to get away. We, we've got to get away from everything. No, it doesn't mean we escape this present world. It just means we live differently in the world because we are focused on Jesus. And so the things that this world chases after, the things that this world says are important, they're not important to us because we're focused on Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, live life with an eternal perspective, not a temporal, earthly perspective. There's a second characteristic of this life that we see in our text this morning. It's a life that is marked by holiness. A life that is marked by holiness. Now, that's one of those words, holiness, that we use that word all the time in the church, but I'm not convinced that everyone understands what we mean when we use that word or what scripture means when it uses that word. Everyone just assumes that everyone knows what holiness means, but that's not good enough for me. I want there to be no question or no doubt. The word holy literally means separate or sacred. 
Erickson's Dictionary of Christian Theology defines holiness this way, a condition of purity or freedom from sin or of being set apart to special service. Separate, distinct. That is what holiness means. And the life of a Christian is meant to be marked by holiness. The Bible says that our lives are to look different from the world around us. And if our lives don't look different, then there's a problem. And we need to ask ourselves some hard questions about our relationship with God. We even see in the passage that we're studying here that these, that, that Peter was, these believers that Peter was addressing, he noticed that their life was to be different from the life that they had lived before. Look at what he says there in verse 14. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance. You see, Peter's writing this lesson, or writing this letter to Gentile believers primarily who had lived one way in the world. They had lived for themselves. It was all about them and what made them happy. Before they had pleased Jesus, they had lived to please themselves. Now, they wouldn't classify themselves as overtly bad or evil people. They had simply lived however they wanted to live. Peter says they were living for former lusts. When people hear that word, they usually, their mind automatically goes to a sexual connotation. And it's true that that word can be used to refer to a sexual appetite, but it does not have to be limited the broader use of the word can still be referred to a strong craving or a strong desire for something. So these Gentiles Peter was writing to had previously lusted after something. Maybe it was a position of power. Maybe it was a position of influence that they had lusted after. Maybe it was a certain social status. Maybe it was food. Maybe it was sex. Maybe it was approval. Whatever the case may be, Peter was saying, that is what you used to run after. That's what you used to desire. But your life is now different. You don't chase after that anymore. You don't have to have that position of power. You don't have to have all those toys that everybody else has. You don't have to have that social status. You don't chase after that anymore. That's your old life. How shall we live as believers in this dark world? We live lives that are marked by holiness. Let me ask you a question. Does your life look any different from those out here in the world who are chasing after whatever it is that makes them happy? Does your life look marked different? Or do you look and sound and act like the people of this world who care nothing for Jesus or the things of God? Peter tells these believers to be holy. Notice, in all your conduct. Bring every area of your life into the light. Your life at home, your life at work, your life around your friends, your life in your hobbies, every element, your life when you're driving down the turnpike. Bring every element of your life under examination and say, is it different from the people around me? Is there, does Jesus make a difference? Is it seen in my life, in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, in my attitudes? Am I different or do I look like everybody else? Some people say, 
that this is being a little bit extreme. That when we go that far, we're going a little too far. That we're becoming a little bit fanatical. You say, Pastor Joe, are we going too far? Aren't you going a little bit overboard? Not at all. You see, I believe one of the problems with the church today is in many ways the church has allowed itself to be influenced by the world rather than influencing the world. We've become more and more like the lost world around us rather than influencing them. They've influenced us. This is not fanatical. And I'm not pointing my fingers out here in this audience. I'm asking myself some of those same questions. How am I different? What difference does Jesus make in my life? Am I marked by holy living? Our lives are to be marked by holiness. But did you notice why? Peter gives us two reasons in these verses why we are to be marked by holiness. First, because the God who has called you is holy. He says there in verse 15, he who called you is holy. God is holy. Therefore, those who have placed their faith in him, who he has come in and taken up and lived in the middle of, in the midst of, they should be marked by holiness. If God is in you, God is holy. Therefore, you must be. But notice, secondly, Peter says our lives are to be marked by holiness because God commands holiness from his people. He says there in verse 16, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. God's expectation of his people is that their life would be marked by holiness. We are to be different from the world around us because Christ is in us. And this is not optional for the child of God. This is not we take it or leave it. This is God's command. I'll tell you this. The only way, the only way you and I will live a life that's marked by holiness is if we do what Peter, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. He says there, therefore I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We will only live this life if we die to our sinful, selfish flesh and allow Jesus to live through us. Then and only then will we find ourselves thinking and speaking and acting in a way that's consistent with holiness. If you're a follower of Christ, how should you live? Focused on Jesus. Marked by holy living. But there's a third characteristic that we see in our text this morning. And it's this, it's a life that is governed by reverence. A life that is governed by reverence. Webster's defines the word governed this way, to control, influence, or regulate. To control, influence, or regulate. When I, can't, when I hear that word governed, I can't help but think of when I first started driving you see, back then, there was a term, there was a device that I heard about frequently. There was this device that could be placed on a car that would restrict how fast that car could go. I called it a governor. When that governor was placed, it limited the ability of that car to go above a certain speed. Now, those devices were commonly placed on commercial vehicles. Some were placed on personal vehicles. But it was designed to govern the speed of that vehicle. I'm sure if my parents could have, they would have installed one of those things on my car. 
to control, influence, or regulate. That's what Peter's talking about. When we come to verse 17, and we, we, we see what he says in verses 17 through 21, this is what Peter's talking It's that sense of the word, that our lives are to be governed by reverence, controlled, influenced, regulated by reverence for God. Now, reverence is one of those characteristics that's quite often misunderstood. So let me take a moment and, and, and deal with that. Look at verse 17 when, Paul, or when Peter says uh, that you are to conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in, notice this, fear. That word fear has generated a lot of conversation and even some controversy as people have argued over the meaning of the word. Some have argued that that word literally means terror. Terror. And then there are those who say, no, it doesn't mean terror. That, that, that would mean unbiblical. But it simply means an, a reverential awe for God. So which is it? Is it terror? Is it fear? Or is it reverence and awe? I believe what Peter is telling these believers is to live life governed by reverence for God. And I believe he clearly tells them they are to be governed by reverence. But make no mistake, that reverential awe is based upon a healthy fear of God's power and God's authority. He most certainly is the almighty God, full of power and might and authority. He is the one who is so full of glory that our human minds simply can't comprehend it. He is the one who sets up and takes down rulers. He is the one who commands nature and it acts. He is the one who raises the dead to life and snuffs out the life of the healthy. It is absolutely appropriate to have a reverential, all healthy fear of God. So it's both. Why? Notice why Peter says our lives are to be governed by reverence there in verse 18. He says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with this, notice, the precious blood of Christ. Why are our lives to be governed by reverence? Because you and I recognize the price that was required to be paid in order for us to be redeemed. We recognize the surpassing value of Jesus. God himself came to earth in the person of Christ and he spilled, he poured out every drop of blood so that through his death, you and I could have life. And make no mistake, this was no accident. This was not God's backup plan. This wasn't plan B. Peter clearly says in verse 20 that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before God even spoke the world into existence, Jesus had chosen to lay down his life. God knew that you and I would rebel. He knew that you and I would sin. And he knew the only hope we would have would be him coming and paying the price for that sin, for only Jesus was sinless. And yet this, knowing that cost, Jesus still came. When you and I recognize the price that God has paid for our redemption, we should live each and every day governed by a reverential awe and fear of God. 
not wanting any drop of his blood to have been shed in vain. How now shall we live? Regardless of your circumstances, if you are a child of God, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, made him Lord of your life, then you are to live a life that is focused on Christ. It's going to require some disciplined thinking on our part. We're going to have to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It's going to require some sober living. We're, not going, to, we're going to have to not let this world influence us and miss God's activity in our life. It means living a life marked by holiness, a life that looks different from the world around us because Christ is in us. And it means living a life that's governed by reverence for who God is and for what God has done. That's the life we've been called to live. That's the life this world needs to see. No matter what our circumstances are, this is what we have been called to. It's what I pray by the grace of God, a life I'll be able to live. And one I pray you would join me in endeavoring as well. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so grateful for Jesus, for it is only through Christ that this that we have looked at this morning is even possible. There's not a one of us in this room who on our own and naturally will live a life that's focused on you, marked by holiness, or governed by reverence. Not a one of us in this room can live that life naturally. That requires supernatural power. You must do that through us or we will fail. And so God, I pray that what you would do with a message like this in each one of our hearts and minds is focus our eyes on Jesus. That we would see how desperate we are for you, how much we need you to move in us and through us. And that it would keep us at a place of dependence that you would help us to live a life that would be marked different from this world. God, they desperately need to see the difference that Jesus makes in us. And so would you call us and would you equip us and would you empower us to live this life? Lord, I pray for those who, within the sound of my voice, may not yet have a saving relationship with Christ. They're still steeped in their sin. They're still separated from you. God, would you reach out? Would you bring conviction? Would you help them to see their desperate need for a Savior? And would you show them the glorious truth of the gospel, that you love them with an extravagant love, that you've demonstrated that love by going all the way to the cross, and that you've made provision, you've paid the price for their sin, and you're offering them redemption and restoration and forgiveness and all that their hearts are longing for. Would you let today be their day of salvation? We pray this for your honor and your glory in Christ's name. Amen.